What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. ACLU of District Columbia has brought a lawsuit against D.C. related to how they respond to mental health crisis. The lawsuit states that it is mental health professionals and not law enforcement that should be the primary responders. Joining us to discuss are Michael Perloff, a staff attorney with the ACLU D.C. and lead counsel on the lawsuit, Bread for the City versus District of Columbia. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Doing all right. Thanks for joining. We're also joined by, and correct me if I say your name wrong, Charnel Cheney, a trauma-informed yoga instructor and founder of Bold Yoga in Washington, D.C., who also works with at-risk and underrepresented groups to offer and promote health and healing. Charnel has lived experience with mental health emergencies. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? doing all right. Thank you so much for joining us. And Chanel, I want to start with you because I always like to begin with the personal. Uh, Your bio says that you've lived experience with mental health emergencies. Can you break that down for my listeners, please? Yes. So um, a few years ago, um, I was in a domestic violence relationship and um, me and my partner at the time, we had gotten into an altercation that led to me being choked until I was passed out. By the time um, I woke up moments later, the police was knocking at the door and <clears throat> they had began to try, to try and question me. But, you know, I didn't want to say what he had did. I just kept telling them that I wanted him to get out. I wanted him to leave. And they were like, well, because I wouldn't tell them anything that they it was nothing that they could do. And I was like, I had made a statement and I was like, well, if y'all don't make him leave, I'm going to wind up jumping out the window just for them to get like, kind of understand the severity without me actually saying it. Um, right. And they wind up, they was like, Oh, well now we have to take you to CPAP and CPAP here is just like a mental hospital. And all I've heard was like negative things about it. So immediately my anxiety started to go off. I went into a panic attack and they grabbed me by my hands and my feet, dragged me all the way to the car, kicking and screaming, <clears throat> kicking and screaming, and dropped me off at United Medical Hospital, which was mm-hmm. which is like a local hospital. They never took me to CPAP and they just like sedated me and I woke up and I left. So it was like no follow up. No, nothing. Chanel, first I want to I want to say that I'm sorry for your experience, and also tell you that I deeply empathize. I too am a survivor, uh, both of domestic violence and also of police intervention into that domestic violence. In my case, I was arrested and taken to jail following um, the battery. Can you talk about what the impact of that was on you long term? both in terms of your mental and emotional health, but also in where you felt you could call for help if you ever again needed to. Um, yeah, so the short-term effect was um, that, so CPS wanted to begin involved and because um, I had smaller children, so I had to, you know, send them with their fathers to try to, like, get him removed from the home. So it was a lot that I had to deal with on my own that did give me a chance to go ahead and file the restraining order. But even after that, when it would be like little instances of like him stalking me, it just showed him that he could get away with it because he knew how to finesse the police or he knew what the system was. 
So he would do stuff like he would stalk me and he would, and when I would call the police, all he would do is be like, oh, well, she was doing it. He would flip everything on me. And because by the time they would get there, I would be so upset and, you know, mm-hmm. going off, it would look like I was the aggressive and he would calm down by the time they got there. And it would be like, oh, well, this is just some baby mother, baby father type of drama, which that wasn't the case at all. It was like, no, he's harassing me. He's stalking me. He's doing stuff to, you know, intimidate or scare me because he knew what he was doing. Right, right. And as far as the long-term effects, I want to say, even after I had, you know, got him out, like, I would have drink real bad nightmares, you know what I'm saying? Because I would be really scared. I felt so unprotected. I felt like it wasn't nobody I could go to or call. I really wasn't trying to involve my family too much because, I didn't know how far they was willing to take things, and I just didn't. It just was a lot that played on my mental health and on my well-being. Right. Again, sending my my deepest apologies, especially because that did not have to be the case. Michael, how common in D.C. are stories like Chanel's? I understand that the lawsuit cites multiple incidences of where police being the primary responders to mental health crisis or community crisis um, has just resulted in excessive uses of force or exacerbation of, of, of the situation. We hear many stories of people who have had similar experiences of officers responding to a mental health crisis and using far more force than is necessary. And I I think it's important to note that even when an officer isn't using excessive force, just the presence of the officer can be deeply traumatizing, particularly for someone who's in crisis. And that problem is exacerbated by district policy, which requires officers to handcuff people anytime Uh, they are being taken in a police car to a mental health hospital, which is often the way that officers are handling these situations. So, you know, you you have cases where there are often extreme acts of violence, but just the average case is not giving folks with mental health challenges the type of care that they deserve. Right. Now, in, in prepping for the interview, my understanding is D.C. does have community response teams or CRTs, correct? So there is an option, but how many are there and why are they not being utilized? So the district has community response teams or or groups of mental health professionals that can be dispatched to mental health crises. The problem is that they are way too few in number to be effective. So we've spoken to former members of those teams who say the phone would just ring and ring and no one would even be able to answer it because they were so overwhelmed. Uh, our client, Bread for the City, says that in their experience, it takes between one and three hours for one of these community response teams to come to the scene. And for someone in crisis, that's just too long. These are emergencies. They're emergencies just like a physical health emergency, where the standard time for a response in D.C. is expected to be between five and nine minutes. It's a huge difference than one and three hours. And while someone in crisis is waiting, that one and three hour period, they're getting more agitated. They may uh, become uh, upset and angry in a way that makes it harder to de-escalate, or they may shut down in a way that makes it harder to provide them support and ask them the questions needed to determine care. So for many people who really need emergency support, a community response team just isn't a viable option because there aren't enough members of those teams to provide meaningful services. 
And just a technical question. So here, the city-run program here in Oakland, California, where I live, the city-run program called MACRO, the calls to the crisis responders go through the 911 dispatch system. What is the protocol in D.C.? People in D.C. can call directly the uh, what's called the Access Helpline. There are other numbers that get you to mental health professionals. Uh, the problem is that not a ton of people know that phone number. The district hasn't done enough work to promote it. But on top of that, again, we have this problem of long delays in service. So even if you call directly, you're still going to have these challenges of getting someone to actually come and provide care. Now, the vast majority of folks in D.C., when they have an emergency, call 911. And 911 operators do have limited authority to direct calls that they receive involving mental health crises to that hotline I mentioned with mental health professionals. But that's a very small fraction of, of the calls they're receiving. In fact, less than 1% of the 911 calls that primarily or exclusively involve mental health crises received by 911 were transferred to mental health professionals last year. So a very small number. And where are the others going? They're going to the police. Yeah, we have the same problem here, but here it's 6%. It's like they're just refusing to divert the calls away from being responded to with a badge and a gun. Um, across the country, Michael, we've seen movements on the ground to fight to shift who the primary responders to mental health crisis are. Um, I know you know, often it's, it's a movement in the streets that helps the movement in the courtrooms. What's the status of the state of grassroots organizing around this issue in D.C.? D.C. is fortunate to have a strong group of folks who have lived here, who have experience, and who are pushing for change. There is a coalition that my organization, the ACLU of D.C., is a part of called the D.C. Crisis Response Coalition. Charnel is also part of that group. And we've developed a policy platform that talks about a series of very specific reforms and, and really, honestly, common sense reforms that the district could make to improve the services it provides folks. Uh, the members of that coalition include mental health professionals, community members, activists. And so we're hoping that together we can help the legislature and the government understand the importance of providing people with mental health services the care they need and honestly the care they deserve. Well, what are they not getting? I mean, this this tide has has really created a sea change across the country. There's the data, there's the rationale, there's the logic. What are electeds not not getting? I, I think fundamentally, a lot of elected officials are built in this old school mindset that people with mental health crises are dangerous and they need to be responded to by someone, as you said, with a badge and a gun. Now, we know, based on data, based on uh, interactions with community members, we know that's not the case. Uh, mental People with mental health disabilities nationally uh, are responsible for, for less than 5% of all crime. In the district, there was a recent study that came out uh, by our Department of Behavioral Health that found that only seven instances, seven instances where the district's most sophisticated crisis response officers responded to mental health crises, and, and the person there had a gun in the last three years. So most cases, these people, uh, the folks who are having crises are unarmed. Most cases, there is no threat to anyone but perhaps the person in crisis. And, and that goes to the fundamental aspect of all of these cases, which is that 
a person in crisis isn't a threat. Uh, they're not they're not a, a risk to be managed. But they are as a human being who's having a medical challenge and who is going to be best served by a medical professional providing care and support. And if I could just All right. add to Go ahead, Mike, yes. um, like later on, I had sat on a panel um, that was with a mental health professionals and I was and with a couple of police officers and I was able to share, you know, what had transpired. And the domestic violence specialist was saying that, one, I shouldn't have never been questioned in front of my abuser. That was a violation. Right. That was probably something that they would have known had they had a proper training. Two, the being that I was just choked and to the point where I was passed out, even though they didn't know that, it still wasn't a time for me to have been um, questioned. There wasn't enough blood flowing to my to, to my brain for me to even fully properly, you know, be able to function in that moment. So it's just like stuff like that, that a mental health professional or domestic violence person going to know as soon as they come up, they're going to be able to identify and know what's happening. That's right. Um, Michael, I've just got about 90 seconds left. If y'all win the lawsuit, what changes? What we've asked for is for there to be basic parity between the services that are provided to people who have mental health disabilities and those provided to people who have health disabilities. When you call 911 for a heart attack, you get a trained medic. When you call 911 for a mental health crisis, you get a cop. We want the same sort of care and respect and effective services that are provided to people with physical health crises, provided to those with mental health disabilities. Sharnel, what are your hopes in, in terms of what shifts uh, in, in D.C. for your community? Uh, yes, I really hope that we can have more uh, crisis response teams like the one that um, Michael just described and the, short, the time that they're showing up because they have the capacity is lessened. Um, and I see more mental health professionals just being able to show up instead of police and handle a lot of these situations so that, you know, they can focus on more serious stuff. All right. Well, I want I wish you all luck and thank you both for coming on the show this morning. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>